no walk-up music today, so it's just me awkwardly carrying my little table. Happy New Year. Hopefully your 2021 is off to a great start now that we're three days in, uh, trying to be optimistic about the year ahead. Even if we don't know what it entails and what it holds, I trust that God does, and he's a much better planner than I am anyway, because I'm a terrible planner just in general. So I'm just trusting God that he knows what he's doing. Uh, As we dive in this week, uh, you hopefully remember Pastor Steve a couple weeks ago talked about this idea that in the new year, one of the things that we wanted to push into as a church is this theme of discipleship. And so in a couple weeks, uh, we're going to launch into a series out of the book of Ephesians. Uh, and Ephesians is, is all about discipleship. I'll intro that a little bit this morning. Uh, but then we also have the Intentional Foundations or the If My People Seminar that's going to start this Wednesday. So there's a couple key things we're pushing into. But we felt like it was really important before we just dive in and start throwing around words like disciple and discipleship to make sure that we all know and understand what is this thing. And so my goal both this week and next week is to look at what are the basics of discipleship? Uh, what, what does it look like? How do we do it? And so this week, I, I want to approach three core questions about discipleship. Uh, number one, I want to look at what is discipleship. Uh, number two, I want to look at what does discipleship entail? What does it look like? So define it. What does it look like? Uh, but then thirdly, I want to push into why. Why does discipleship matter? Why is it important to understand what discipleship is? And I actually want to start with that third question first, because my concern is if I give you the definition of discipleship first, we define it, you go, okay, yeah, that's nice. And we move on. But I think when we understand why discipleship matters, we engage the definition of it a little bit differently. My hope is that there's some urgency in that. So let's begin with that first question. Why is discipleship important? Uh, probably three years ago, I think it was, give or take, uh, my younger brother decided to finish the basement in, in his house. And he knows that I have done that before. I won't say that I'm experienced. In my mind, experienced is when someone has knowledge and kind of knows a thing. Uh, when I finished my basement, I watched YouTube videos. It's a great home improvement tool. Uh, if my project for the day was HVAC, I would go on YouTube and search how to install cold air return. And my whole process was, if I mess it up real bad, I have to hire the professionals anyway. I might as well take a stab at it, right? So my younger brother calls me and he says, hey, I know that you did this for your basement. You want to help me on mine? So I said, sure. I said, I can take a couple vacation days. And so I drove to Indiana where he lives. And we, our purpose was this. Our purpose was to help finish his basement. And our priority that weekend was let's get the framing done. Like, just get the walls done. So I had a purpose. I, took vacation. My purpose is I'm going to drive to Indiana, help him get this stuff done. And our priority is let's put all our energy into getting the framing done. So we get launched into this project and there's like two rules, key rules to home improvement. Number one, it'll cost twice what you think it will. Number two, it will take twice as long as you think it will, right? Those are just hard and fast rules. So we get into this project and we realize the previous homeowner had done some framing that was just terrible. It wasn't up to code. The lumber was wrong, no vapor barriers. And so we had to remove some of that framing. So I have a sawzaw at one point and I'm cutting through this wall that we want to remove. And my brother says these prophetic words. And those words were this, watch that water line, right? So I, I should have probably set the sawzaw down then, but I told him, I said, no, I'm cutting parallel to it. I can see it. I'm not going to hit it. What I should have done was take it a look to see which way does that pipe turn, 
right? Just so happens that the pipe turns into the path of my sawzall because they plumbed it wrong, clearly, right? So I'm cutting this wall and I hear the horrific sound of the saw blade hit metal and then water go, right? So my purpose was to help him finish the basement. My priority was the framing. In that moment, when there's water filling his basement, our purpose and priority went out the window, right? Now I start yelling, hit the main, hit the main. And so he runs over and that little thing that turns off the water takes forever. It's like, like, turn it faster, right? And he's turning it off. And finally the water stops. And my sister-in-law, who is like a super patient, kind person, yells down from upstairs, did I hear water? Right? And everything in me is like, okay, you can't lie because it's her house and there's water in the basement. So I think I said something to the extent of, we have it under control. (laughs) We sort of did, right? The main was off, so it wasn't flooding. But in that moment, I I was super frustrated, right? Because I wanted to help him and our purpose was clear. We're going to finish at least part of the basement. Our priority was get the framing done. In that moment, we had to spend three to four hours cleaning up the water, getting everything dry again. We had to call a plumber. And, and, And I felt like we wasted all of this time pursuing something that in the end didn't even matter, right? That wasn't the purpose for why I was there. That wasn't a priority for what we were supposed to be investing our time in. And and I tell you that to say this, we were designed and created to live life with a specific purpose and to have a certain set of priorities, things we focus our time and energy in. My concern is that sometimes, and this is a fundamentally a discipleship question, that we have our purpose and priorities misaligned, which means we put a lot of time and energy into doing things and accomplishing things with our life that ultimately have no eternal significance, right? Right? And that is fundamentally a discipleship question. And what I want to suggest to us this morning is that you and I were designed and created to live life with purpose and with significance. And I think scripture is clear about this. I think of Ephesians 2.10, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks. But Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. I I love that. We are God's handiwork. Think about that. The God has formed you and fashioned you. He has created you uniquely. You are his handiwork designed and created to do good works, which God has prepared in advance. He's gone before you preparing these things for you to, to be a partner with him in. Now, where Ephesians talks about good works, Paul doesn't just mean like service projects. No, what Paul means is we are partnering with the God of all creation in the redemptive mission and redemptive purpose that God is unfolding. We get to partner with him in that. Your life has significant meaning and purpose. I think 1 Peter 4.10 also speaks to this reality. 1 Peter 4.10 says that each of you should use whatever gifts you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace. And what I love about this is, is Peter's talking to the believers and he says, each of you use whatever gift, right? We don't all have the same gift. Your gifting is different than mine, is different than yours, is different than yours. But Paul, or Peter says, each of you use whatever gift God has given you. The unique way that he's designed and created you, the unique way that he's gifted you. Bring that to the table, Peter says, to serve others. And, and you function in that way as a steward, as a manager of God's grace. And the beautiful part about that is when you live your life aligned with God's purpose and you're serving others in a way that God has prepared in advance for you to do, you become a pipeline, a conduit, a means of God's grace in the life of another person, right? And that is the purpose and the significance that you and I were designed and created to live aligned with. 
Because we are supposed to give our life to things that matters most. So, so let me ask you this question. What is your purpose in life? What are your priorities? When it comes down to it, what, what are the bottom line things that matter most to you? And this is important because life apart from Jesus has a way of distorting both our purpose for our life and our priorities for our life. Did you catch that? Life apart from Jesus distorts both our purpose for our life and our priorities for our life. I mean, listen to how Jesus describes that reality in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 34. Here Jesus is speaking to a multitude of people, and it says this in Mark 8, 34. It says, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Notice what Jesus says there. He says, don't hang on to your life. He says, if you want to save your life, you'll actually lose it. What does he mean? He means if you want to live life independently of him, you can live independently. You can uh, take control of your own life. You can call your own shots. But he says, ultimately, there will be an eternal consequence of separation from him. You will lose the very thing you tried to keep to yourself. Rather, Jesus says, if you want to save your life, he says, you will lose it. And by that, he means you will deny yourself and take up your cross. You will go all in to following Jesus. Notice how he ended this passage, though. This is significant. He says, what good is it if a person gains the entire world? Right? In his time, Rome was a major uh, world player. They were living under Roman rule. He might have said something like, imagine you become emperor of Rome, most of the entire known world at that point. Imagine if you achieve the pinnacle of power, yet forfeit your soul. What good is it? So, so let me ask you this. What, what is your purpose in life? What, what are your priorities? Because life apart from Jesus has a way of distorting our purpose and priorities. And my concern is that we have spent time and energy investing in things that actually result in a forfeiture of our soul and a forfeiture of our spiritual health and well-being. I, I think we live in a culture that prioritizes things like economic security and stability. And if you can just get the right amount of money in your 401k or have the right amount of money in your bank account, you'll feel a little bit more secure. If you can just find that right relationship and marry the right person, if you can just buy the right house or live in the right town or do the right, and, and we're always looking for this thing to bring fulfillment. And none of those things are wrong. Being in a good relationship is healthy. Economic financial stability is not wrong. The problem is we make those the chief end and the sole aim of our life. That becomes our purpose. And when that happens, we make soul compromises to achieve those things. We neglect our spiritual journey for the acquisition of things and stuff and power and status and success. And Jesus would say, what good is it if you gain all that and yet forfeit your soul in the process? So here's why discipleship matters. Discipleship matters because it is in our discipleship journey of following Jesus that we discover our true purpose and that we are able to rightly prioritize life. In other words, I could say this more simply by saying this, life with Jesus has a way of changing what truly matters to us. Life with Jesus has a way of unearthing our true purpose that we were designed and created to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. We were designed and created to be in relationship with him. And so discipleship matters because there you discover your true purpose and right priorities. 
So let's ask or talk about this fundamental question. What, what is discipleship? What is a disciple? And, and I think this is important because in, in church world, we love to throw around these terms and assume we all mean the same thing by them. And so I think it's helpful just to pause and step back and go, okay, what is meant by this idea of what it is to be a disciple? So again, Mark chapter eight, I think brings clarity to this idea. In Mark chapter eight, verse 34, it says, then he, Jesus, called two groups of people to him. He called the crowd along with his disciples. Did you notice that the text differentiates between these two groups? Now, the the crowd are are a group of people without commitment. The crowd are the people who show up and they go, we want to hear what Jesus has to say, or we want to see what miraculous thing he can do. But the crowd stays at a safe distance and says, you know, we're not going to really deny ourselves, take up our cross. We just want to see this thing unfold. The disciples, on the other hand, these are a group of people who are followers of Jesus, who have thrown their life into pursuit of him. So a disciple is simply this. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. And Jesus even describes what that looks like. He says, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. What does he mean? To deny yourself means I no longer live my life independently. I no longer have the right to call my own shots for my life. What I do is I say, Jesus, my life is not my own, but I'm surrendering and submitting my life into your hands. I want to follow you with everything that's in me. Let me flesh this out for you. Um, You've seen this diagram before. Both myself and Pastor Steve have used this. And and this is just a way I want to help visually kind of represent a person's spiritual journey. So at at this end of the spectrum, we'll we'll call this uh, being spiritually lost. And a person who's spiritually lost is someone who has not made a decisive commitment to follow Jesus. Uh, at the extreme end of this spectrum is probably someone who's not even thinking about spiritual things. Now, along the spectrum, there are maybe an atheist, an agnostic. You might have a doubter, a searcher, a seeker, right? People are at different places along this. But at some point, when somebody has an encounter with Jesus, right, there's often a catalytic moment where somebody encounters his grace, Right? And this is part of our mission statement. Part of what we want to help people do is encounter God's grace. And 1 Peter 4.10 speaks to this idea, right? Each of you should use whatever gifts you've received as faithful stewards of God's grace as you serve one another. You might be a means through which somebody encounters God's grace and has this life-changing experience that begins to move them to this moment of responding to Jesus. So this midpoint, we'll call this belief in Jesus. Right? This is someone who comes to know Jesus, who puts their trust in him, who says, Jesus, I want to surrender and submit my life to you. Right? This is the moment where someone becomes a disciple. A moment where they put their faith and their trust in Jesus. Where they say, I want to deny myself. I want to pour myself holistically into you. Right? So there's this encounter moment. There's this moment where they come to a decisive opportunity to say, Jesus, my life is yours. Discipleship, then, is this movement towards what we'll call spiritual maturity. And spiritual maturity, I'm going to define this way. Spiritual maturity is Christ-likeness. That means who I am and how I live more and more reflects the life of Jesus. This means that the way we see Jesus live and the way that we see Jesus love is how you and I are called to live. Right? And, and that is not an impossible sort of pipe dream that, that we should be like Jesus. No, the Holy Spirit empowers us to live a life that more and more resembles Jesus. 
And, and so this moment of putting your faith in Jesus and moving towards spiritual maturity, right, that's not an instantaneous thing. There is a process, we'll, we'll call it growing in grace, right? Also part of our mission statement. Part of what we want people to do is grow in grace. And this process of growing in grace, you've put your trust in Jesus, you're pushing towards spiritual maturity. This is the process of discipleship. So I'm going to define it simply for you this way. Discipleship is the process of being spiritually formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others and the glory of God. Alan, if you would, again, just leave that up for a moment. I I want you to write this down because this is going to be a significant uh, portion of how we approach discipleship as a church. Discipleship is the process of being spiritually formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others and for the glory of God. Now, scripturally, uh, this comes from places like Galatians, where Paul is writing to the church, and he says, I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Right? Paul, is go, Paul says, I, I, am, I am burdened until the people in the church of Galatia uh, evidence the heart and the character of Jesus until he's formed in you. That's what Paul was, was, was working towards. That was his mission in the churches he partnered with. And notice that that our spiritual maturity is not for us alone. It's for the sake of others, right? We are called to be a sent people. And ultimately, our uh, movement towards spiritual maturity, towards Christ-likeness, is so that God will be glorified. So when we talk about that discipleship process, we're talking about this journey of moving towards being more and more like Jesus. And, And this is important. Discipleship is not a program to be completed, It is the person of Jesus Christ that we radically surrender and submit our lives to. And and by the way, can can we just say that Jesus has the worst recruiting tagline ever? If you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. If I'm there, I'm like, is there another rabbi here that we could follow? Like another teacher that, I mean, I don't want to deny myself, take up my cross. This is a serious thing. And, and sometimes I think we short sell this, right? We make discipleship not, not too big of a deal. Like it's just the next step. This is a big deal. When you become a disciple, you are holistically handing your life over to Jesus. So let me ask this question. What does discipleship look like? What are, what are core components of this journey? And to flesh this out for us, I want to hit quickly the story of the people of Israel. Now, the people of Israel were called to be God's chosen people. And when God makes this covenant with Israel, he tells their their forefather, Abraham, he says, Abraham, through you, all nations will be blessed. And so God chooses the people of Israel to be a blessing to all people. It is is in the lineage of Abraham that that Jesus comes, right? And we just celebrated Advent and Christmas, which is where we anticipate the coming and the arrival of our Messiah. And so we experience the beauty and the joy of redemption and salvation because of what God has done in and through the people of Israel. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you will see that the spiritual journey of the people of Israel is not like a smooth slope upward towards godliness. The people of Israel, they struggled and they wrestled where they should be pursuing God. They instead pursue idols where they should be trusting God to provide for them. They go running to like Egypt and say, hey, can you keep us safe? And over and over again, it's this story of forsaking God and rebelling and God redeeming them. In the book of Ezekiel, we get to this point where Israel has been in a state of rebellion and they experience a significant season of disruption. Kind of like what we experienced last year, a significant season of disruption. 
And the people of Israel in the time of Ezekiel are living in a moment in history where there's large geopolitical upheaval. Egypt and the Assyrians and the Babylonians have been vying for power. And finally, Babylon emerges victoriously and they conquer Egypt and they, they, they destroy Jerusalem. And the people of Israel are hopeless and they're crushed. And we're going to pick up the story in Ezekiel chapter 37, where God begins to speak a word of hope to the people of Israel. And as God speak this, speaks this word of hope, what he's doing is he begins to describe what it means to be the people of God. In other words, he begins to describe what it looks like for us to live a life where we're walking in relationship with God in this discipleship journey. So let me read this for you. Ezekiel chapter 37. Let me start in verse 1. The hand of the Lord was on me. That's Ezekiel, the prophet. And he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? Now, spoiler, let me jump ahead a little. Let me just read this for you. In verse 11, it says, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We're cut off. So when God brings Ezekiel to this valley of dry bones, he's using this as a metaphor. And he says, Ezekiel, this is where Israel is at right now. They have forsaken me. And by the way, this arrow pointing away from this encounter with Jesus is significant. When we live in rebellion, running away from Jesus, it leads us to a place of brokenness, right? And Israel had been in this long season of rebellion and they experienced the fruit of that rebellion, which was the brokenness of trying to do life independently of their relationship with God. And they're at this place where God brings Ezekiel to this valley of dry bones. And, and he says, Ezekiel, what do you see? Can these dry bones live? And if I'm Ezekiel, I'm looking at this going, uh, God, this is a pretty bleak scenario. Dry bones don't come back to life. Now, Ezekiel is a much wiser person than, than I am. And instead of saying, no, like dry bones that come back to life, he says, Lord, you alone know. As the story unfolds, listen to what happens. Then God said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. So Ezekiel prophesied as he was commanded. And as he was prophesying, the bones came together bone to bone. And he looked and tendons and flesh covered them and skin covered them. Then God said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breathe from the four winds and breathe life into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded and breath entered them and they came to life and stood up on their feet. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We're cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I'm going to open up your graves and bring you back from them. I will bring you back from the land, to the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I open up your graves and bring you up from them. So this movement from rebellion back to a place of relationship with God is a fundamental shift from death to life. They have been living in a place of rebellion in their spiritual journey, running away from faithfulness to their God. And it has brought them to a place fundamentally of brokenness and fundamentally to a place of death. And there the words of Jesus might ring true. What good is it if a person gains the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very soul? When we put our faith in Jesus and respond to his invitation to be a disciple and to become his people, this is fundamentally a shift from a, a disposition that leads to death to a, a relationship with God that leads to life. 
So what does this look like? As Ezekiel describes this, I want to leave you with five things that I think are fundamental to what this discipleship journey looks like. Number one, it's about responding to God's invitation to relationship. I mean, several times, I'm not going to read it again for you, but several times in both chapter 36 and chapter 37, God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. The call of God has always been a call to relationship. From the very foundations of creation, the triune God created Adam and Eve to be in relationship with himself. A discipleship begins, this journey towards Christ-likeness begins with responding to God's invitation to relationship with himself. In chapter 37, verses 27 and 28, God says, my dwelling place will be with them and I will be their God. In other words, when he redeems Israel and brings them back out of their bondage, out of their slavery, he says, I will be your God. I will dwell among you. This is fundamentally an invitation to relationship. Secondly, what does discipleship look like? As as God describes this relationship with Israel, in verse 23, he says this. He says, they, my people Israel, will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses, for I will save them from their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. As we respond to God's invitation to relationship and there's a shift from death to life, notice what God says, I will cleanse them from their offenses that there is freedom from the sinful practices of our old life that lead to death. And what I love about this is God doesn't say, try really hard to lay those things down. No, God says, I will cleanse my people. And this life lived in rebellion against God, pursuing our own way, pursuing our own direction, inevitably leads to a place of brokenness. Because apart from pursuing this relationship with God, we will live our lives in ways that God has called us not to live. So discipleship is first and foremost fundamentally about responding to God's invitation to relationship. Secondly, it's about removing sinful practices. And by the way, for some of us who've been walking with Jesus for a long time, let me ask you this question. As you push into this relationship of growing towards Christ-likeness, are there attitudes, dispositions, and behaviors that you are rationalizing that are actually part of your old sinful life that God has asked you to lay down? What things have you grown okay with in your new life that Jesus says, actually, I want you to lay that down? Discipleship is about responding to God's invitation to relationship, removing sinful practices. It's also fundamentally about realigning our life with God's word and God's way. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 24, as God defines what his relationship with Israel looks like, he says this. He says, When redemption springs forth in verse 24, my servant David will be king over them. They will have one shepherd. Catch this. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. Let me ask you this. What is the defining uh, measure of how you live your life? I mean, notice what he says here. In that day, when people of Israel are faithful to God, he says, they will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. When he talks about his laws and decrees, God is talking about his word. And so the the fundamental question for us is, as disciples, are we forming and shaping our life around being careful to align our life with God's word and God's way? Because what's important here is to recognize that belief in Jesus is not just a mental exercise, right? This isn't just saying, I believe a, a, a set number of doctrines. It's more than that. This is holistically pouring your life into Jesus and saying, Jesus, I want my life to reflect what's written in your word and to reflect who you are. This is a transformation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Discipleship is about pushing into what it means that we are made new, which fundamentally means realigning our life with God's word and God's way. 
And again, I would ask the question, what are you rationalizing that is not in line with God's word, but that you've grown complacent in? As you step into a new year, let this be an opportunity to say, God, I'm not okay with rationalizing things that are part of an old life that should actually be made new. I think discipleship is also about this idea of radical obedience. And this is one, quite frankly, I just don't like. Radical obedience means that I am no longer free to choose my own destiny. It means I've submitted and surrendered my life into God's hand and said, God, I want to follow your purpose. This is what Jesus said in Mark 8, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him, right? Now, notice what happens in Ezekiel 37. In verse 4, God comes to Ezekiel and he says, Ezekiel, I want you to prophesy to this valley of dry bones. Do you think about how ridiculous that sounds? He brings Ezekiel to this valley of dry bones. And, and it says, in verse two, it says, they're very dry. These bones have been there a long time, bleached white by the sun. And he goes, Ezekiel, I want you to prophesy to these dry bones. Now, if I'm Ezekiel, I, I mean, imagine, imagine, imagine you drive by an 8th Street, you know, the, the cemetery out there. What would you think if you saw me out there with a pulpit preaching to the gravestones? Somebody probably would get out their phone and call the church and be like, Steve, uh, you need to go over to the cemetery. Aaron is over there. He's preaching a sermon to the, the gravestones. He's, he's finally cracked. He needs help, right? You'd think I lost it. Nobody's even going to hear this prophecy. And yet God says, Ezekiel prophesied of the dry bones. And, and what was so fascinating to me is that it says, verse seven, so I prophesied as I was commanded. Who does that? I mean, Ezekiel lives out and models what right discipleship is. He is radically obedient to step into what God is calling him to, even when it doesn't make sense. And then I think discipleship, moving towards Christ-likeness, surrendering your life to Jesus often looks like radical obedience. This means when God calls us to go or calls us to lay something down, we offer that in, in service and submission to him. Now, listen, I mean, I can't say this 100%, but most likely God's not going to ask you to preach a sermon to a valley of dead people, right? But what if God calls you to bear witness to his truth in a situation where you're surrounded by people who are spiritually dead? What if God says, hey, at your Christmas family get together, I want you to be intentional to have spiritual conversations with family members that you know don't know me. And in the back of your mind, you're like, God, you don't know my family get-togethers. We're going to fight about this or that or this aunt or that uncle or this person. Well, they don't get along, right? I, I understand those family dynamics, right? That's a thing. But what if God calls you to be a redemptive presence in a place that has lost and desperately needs him? Or what if God calls you in radical obedience to testify to the truth of the gospel in the place where you work or to serve your neighbors in your neighborhood in a loving way? What if God calls you to radical obedience in a way that you're really, really uncomfortable with, but he wants you to bear witness to his truth in a place where people are lost and have forfeited their souls on the way to hell? ah, God, I don't want to be the holy roller, right? I don't want to be the guy who works like, oh, that's the Jesus guy. I don't want to be the person that, you know, the Thanksgiving dinner when the family sees me, they roll their eyes and it's like, okay, here's the, you know, the Jesus person, right? But what if God has called us to be radically obedient, to bear witness to his truth out of a place of right discipleship? This journey towards Christ-likeness involves responding to God's invitation, removing sinful practices, realigning your life around God's word and God's way. It looks like radical obedience. And finally, I think it looks like recognizing your true purpose and God's mission. At the end of uh, chapter 37 in verse 28, it says this. 
It says, my dwelling place will be uh, with them. God's dwelling place will be with his people. It says, I will be their God. They will be my people. Catch this. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy. In other words, when Israel is living with their life in relationship with God, rooted in that, pursuing him, he says, all the nations will know. And church, I want us to recognize that our fundamental purpose is to be a people who are set on fire by the love of God, whose lives are so radically redeemed and transformed that we cannot help but go in service to people who are lost and bear witness to the truth of the gospel. This, in my mind, echoes the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where Jesus, before he leaves and ascends to heaven, he tells his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. What is a disciple? It's a follower of Jesus. He says, go everywhere. That is your fundamental purpose. And when you become a disciple and move towards Christ-likeness, the purpose and priority of your life looks fundamentally different. Let me ask you, what are you investing your life in? Are there things that we are prioritizing and making our chief purpose that are actually a forfeiture of the well-being of our soul? What good is it, Jesus says, for a person to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit your very soul? This idea, right, we're not only to encounter him, to put our faith in him, to grow in him, but part of our mission is to help people give grace, right? And this is not an inconsequential thing. Christ-likeness doesn't just stop in me looking like Jesus internally, but as, as the heart of Christ is formed in me, I have a burning passion and desire for people who are lost and don't know Jesus to come to know him. And so our life begins to turn outward on itself as we become stewards of God's grace who eagerly seek to serve others well. So what does discipleship look like? It looks like responding to God's invitation, removing sinful practices, realigning your life around God's word and God's way. It looks like radical obedience and it looks like recognizing your true purpose in God's mission. How would life look differently if we lived that way? This morning as we respond, I think we're going to respond in maybe the most, um, the way that makes most sense, and that's by taking communion. And as we partake of communion, what we're doing is we're remembering and recognizing the sacrifice that Jesus paid for us to experience the radical transformation that he brings. Scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death, and, and wages is something we earn, right? And what I rightly deserve is death. But Scripture tells us that God demonstrates his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And so what we believe is that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can be reconciled back to God, that we can experience this shift from death to life, that we can find our new purpose and priority in life in Jesus. And so as we partake of communion this morning, I want us to reflect on those realities that we can be thankful that God calls us to a new life filled with purpose and significance rooted in our discipleship relationship with him.